0: All right, we are actually, I would probably recommend, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit, but I would recommend that if you wanted to open your Bible to one particular passage, it would actually be Luke 11. which feels a little strange in a series on John 15 through 17, admittedly. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, We desperately need your help. I pray, God, that you would protect us from any false teaching or false gospel. You guard our hearts and let us discern in the power of the Holy Spirit. God, protect us from that kind of teaching, but protect us from our own deceitful hearts and our own broken minds. Let us, God, not seek what makes us most comfortable or most vindicated or feel the best, but let us seek you. And that is what our desire is. In the power of the Holy Spirit, through our one mediator, Jesus Christ, Father, we seek you through your word. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this week uh, was actually going to be the beginning of our series on in Lent uh, through spiritual, uh, on spiritual disciplines. But instead, I uh, had to break up last week's sermon. And so last week's sermon was part two on the high priestly prayer. And so this week's is part two B or three or I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But this is like the last point of that sermon ends up being its own sermon in true J fashion. I made it longer than the original sermon. So um, I'm going to do my best here to kind of motor through, but I want to make sure I treat the things with care that need to be treated with care. And so I'm just going to state out front that I can't do all that. After first service, somebody came up to me and asked me about a statement I made kind of in passing. It's a great question. It was a completely legitimate question. I wish that I'd had 10 minutes to unpack that in the sermon, but I didn't. And so please do that. If you have anything that I say that I'm kind of assuming that, like, we all get what I'm saying when I say that, um, and you're saying, "Ah, I don't know that I do get that or agree with that, please talk to me. I would love to, to be able to, to talk more deeply about that and maybe explain more what I meant and, and um, help figure it out that way. But last week we talked about unity and how unity is something that Jesus prays for for the church. It's not just a nice to have thing, but it is key and it is key in in the desire of Jesus that we would be one with one another as as he is one with the Father and that we would have unity with him and thus unity with one another. And we talked about how not only with Jesus in his prayer, but Paul also um, devotes tons of time and Peter devotes time to this idea that there is nothing outside of the truth of the gospel that is more important than unity. And you see this in Paul where there are all kinds of things that come up where he says, you know, like, look, somebody says this day's better, more important than and other people say that this day is more important. And and they talk about eating meat and, and how you're supposed to handle communion and, and all these different things. At, at one point he even says, when they're saying, Hey, this guy over here is preaching for selfish gain, and Paul says, Look, leave him alone. It's not that big of a deal. Whether he preaches for selfish gain or not, Christ is preached, and, and that we rejoice in. So he, even that, he's saying, look, we're not going to be divided over those things. But there is something that Paul would fight over. And that's what I want to kind of dig into. The one thing that Paul was willing to fight about was the purity of the gospel message. And so I want to address that issue of saying, okay, what, is, what does it mean to proclaim a false gospel? This term, heresy or false gospel, is getting thrown around a lot right now. And so I thought it would be good for us to look at that and to not only say, what is that, but what false gospel? Is there a false gospel that is a big threat to our unity and to the church? And I believe that there is. First, it would, it would be important to distinguish between heresy and heretical and unhelpful teaching. Okay, that's, that's an important distinguishing mark. Because if I just say like, what's false teaching? What does it mean to have a false gospel? Well, does that mean anything that I see as unbiblical? Does it mean anything that I disagree with? Do I mean anything that has been abused and perverted in some way? I don't think that's the definition that we have there's a difference between heretical teaching and unhelpful teaching. Look, there are a lot of doctrines and a lot of things in scripture that godly people disagree about. There are things that I think are really important. There are things that other people emphasize or don 't emphasize that I think it's better to teach it in a different way and and those are those are important distinguishing marks, and we need to have a, a frame of reference for that and so like for me, one of those big things is to Grow our understanding and to develop a strong theology of suffering. So, I grew up in a church that did not teach a strong theology of suffering. Suffering was just kind of dismissed as, like, yeah, that's one of the bummers about being in a broken world. But God's involvement in it and his design around it and what he does through it, that was all just kind of like, yeah, we don't talk about that. That God basically looks at my suffering and thinks, like, "Ah, that's a bummer. Won't be like that forever. And so what happened to me was in, in my life, I've definitely experienced some, some heartache as I'm sure all of us have, um, but there are a couple of things that happened to me in the course of my life. There are a couple of deaths that I um, experienced of people close to me that really rocked me, that really rocked my world and really just, just shook everything around me. And the first time that that happened, I had an underdeveloped understanding of suffering, And it wrecked me. I couldn't understand, like, why did this happen? God, how could you let this happen? Why, why aren't you paying attention? Like, if you, if you can stop this, why didn't you stop this? Why did you, why is this going on? And, and I just, it just wrecked me. I went on a spiral, and I questioned who God is. I, I was, um, I just was struggling constantly. I questioned my call into ministry. I questioned everything. Well, fast forward. I grew in my understanding of scriptures and through some different teachings, I started to understand in scripture that God's good plan in suffering. How suffering isn't just like this accidental thing that like, ah, too bad that happens, but God is working deeply in the midst of it. That he is good and sovereign in the midst of it. And he's working things together and that it is not outside of his domain. And that prepared me for when I dealt with another death that was heartbreaking to me but my experience in that was totally different than the first time because all of a sudden I saw God as good in the midst of it I went to him rather than questioning him I I found myself not drawn away from God but drawn deeper into his presence and deeper into my worship of him And so that's an example of where I would say, man, it is incredibly important to equip people with this understanding that if you will follow Jesus, you will have trouble. I think that's incredibly important. But I don't think it's heresy to not develop that. I don't look at churches that don't develop that and think that's a false gospel. There's a difference Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 to 13, he transitions by saying, I will, I will show you a still more excellent way. It's a better way, a deeper understanding of Christ, a deeper understanding of how he works in the world. And that's something that we all grow in our whole lives. And not having a deeper understanding doesn't mean we're a heretic. It just means that we're missing some part of what the treasures are that Christ offers when Apollos is mentioned in, in Acts 18, it talks about him, how he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That's a good thing. They explained, they didn't pull Apollos off to the side and say, You're preaching a false gospel. They said they, they explained to him more accurately the way of God. It was a help. And so. If that's helpful and unhelpful, heresy historically has really been centered around three big questions, which are who is Jesus, how are we saved, and how do we remain in him? That's it. Like I'm sure that somebody could come up to me afterwards and say, well, technically there's this, but m-, like every heresy I can think of and every false gospel in the history of the church has really dealt with one of those questions. And a lot of them, a huge proportion of them, dealt with that first one of who Jesus is. It's a question of, is he man? Is he God? Did he really live this life? Did he really raise from the dead? And you can see when, when Paul is addressing those kinds of things, he talks about it differently. He says things like, look, if, when people were debating, did Jesus really raise from the dead? Or was it more of just like a spiritual awakening? Did he, did he maybe not die all the way? Or did people just lie about it because they just wanted to be empowered by that? And Paul says, look, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're all still dead in our sins. We have no hope. It's, we're worthless. We're above all men to be most pitied. He says things like, if, "If when people are talking about being perfected and how do we please God and how do we, how do we participate in this resurrection and in renewal of life— for people who thought that we would be perfected by our works, Paul says, look, if you're being perfected by that, then Christ died for no reason. Total waste of his time. Those are big, bold statements and they're always related to those questions. So when when, when I use the term heresy or false gospel, I want you to understand that I do not use that term loosely. There are a lot of, of teachers out there that I'm like, I don't think that's so helpful. I might even steer you away from and say, you know, I think this is better. This is a better way. But I wouldn't call them heretics. And so when I use this term, I mean this is a false gospel that will destroy the church. That's heavy And I did not mean last week to leave you all just like waiting for like, well, what is that? And I had people say to me like, so come on, it's driving me crazy. Like, what is the false gospel that you think is so pervasive in the church right now? And even my wife asked me on Monday, like, so hey, what, was, what is the false gospel that you're going to address? And I was like, you'll have to just wait and see. I guess that didn't go over so well, you might imagine. I told her because I'm smart. Uh, Here's the gospel, the false gospel, that is a threat to our unity that I think is so critical right now that we understand and why it's worth taking the time to address it this morning. It is the false gospel of works righteousness. The idea that you can be saved and perfected through your works. Now. Now. I know what a lot of you are thinking, which is, wait, that's it? That's all you got? Like, that's the one that we talk about all the time. Like, that's the one that we all just know that, like, yeah, of course, we're saved by grace. And that's the one that we look at and we see in the scriptures and we're like, man, those guys were dum-dums. How could they not understand that we're saved by grace? Like, I'm glad I don't have that problem. And that is precisely why I think that more than any of the other ones that are out there, this is the most dangerous right now, here. It is an incredibly big deal. It is it is the fact that we so quickly put it into a box that says, nope, I don't do that, that demonstrates how ingrained it is in everything. Every ounce of how we think and how we see things and how we feel about things and how we determine we should respond, it is everywhere. And if it was just saying, oh, you know what, we can develop our understanding of this, then it would work itself out in a lot of different messages. But because I believe that this is a false gospel, it is a heresy that it needs to be addressed. And I would pray that we would have ears to hear. And I want to do that by, by just pointing out some ways that I see it, the symptoms and, and, and what's behind that, and some things that we kind of naturally find ourselves doing and believing and how that is actually revealing that we're not that much different than the Pharisees. Because the, the Pharisees are kind of, that's who we point to. They are the, they are the world champions of works righteousness. They are the poster children for it. They knew the law. They understood. They they, they knew the scriptures. They they pursued holiness. They valued truth. They valued holiness. They were anti-sin. And they wanted everybody to obey that law. And the way they would do it, we've talked about this before, but just kind of as a recap, the way that they predominantly did it was they would take a command that was given in scripture and they would say, okay, at all costs, we have to obey this command. And so they would basically look at that and they'd say, okay, well, if we want to make sure we don't disobey this, we got to make sure we don't get close to that. So if, if it's better to not go across this line, then you know, it's even better than that, not going across this line. Because now I'm, now I'm that much safer. And so this is just better. And so they would kind of create a, a new commandment, that, a new law that would be this. And now they are holding people to this. And then they would say, well, you know what? If, if we're supposed to do this, you know what's even better is that we don't even get, we don't even get close to breaking that. So we're going we're gonna to build up this fence back here. And then they would say, well, you know what? If being this far away from that disobedience is good, well, then being this far away is even better. And they would create then this whole new law based around that understanding. And they would get so far away from the original commandment and the original purpose that they would forget what they were obeying in the first place. And more importantly, they would forget who they were obeying in the first place. And so what they created Was this culture that said, if you want to please God, then you will obey me? Do you see how destructive that is? If you want to be close to God, then you must obey my law. And we see that happening today. It's so tempting, really. Because doesn't it kind of feel right? Like, okay, well, if, if God doesn't want us to do that, doesn't it make sense that I should just stay really far away from that? And isn't the farther I'm away from that, the better? And one of the ways that we see that disguised is through this phrase called, of, of sound doctrine. People will say, like, the importance of doctrine, the importance of, like, we need to be strong in sound doctrine. And it sounds good on the surface, And they'll quote things from Paul saying like, you know, hey, in accordance with sound doctrine. Like Paul was really adamant. He's telling Timothy and Titus, like teach these things in accordance with sound doctrine. There are people who are going to be strayed. They're going to stray away from sound doctrine. The problem is that what people who typically use that phrase mean is they mean this. They mean the sound doctrine that they have formed, not the sound doctrine that Paul is talking about. This is the sound doctrine that Paul is talking about. Jesus Christ really lived. He was really God in the flesh. He really died. And he really rose from the dead. And we are saved by his work and perfected through his grace. That's the sound doctrine. And we'll address some of those later where he, where he um, addresses those things. But that's what he's talking about. That's what people were arguing about. Paul was not addressing things like, in, in his mind of sound doctrine, was not like, well, how, how many alms should the poor get? Like, how many pieces of bread? Or which day should we actually worship and how long should a sermon be? Or how should, how, which party should we support in this, in this um, election or in this government? He's not talking about those things. He's talking about Jesus, who Jesus is, how we are saved, and how we remain in him. And what sound doctrine has come to mean is everything that I have created— and the way that it gets defended is that in this pursuit of truth. So I talked about this like this, last week a little bit. But this idea of like if we just pursue truth, as long as I just read the Bible and I understand it, then I'm going to be fine. And what we unintentionally do is we create this world where we say, okay, pleasing God means dissecting everything that I'm supposed to do and believe from this book. And I'm going to follow this path. And when I get to the end of this path, I'm going to happen upon like some kind of beautiful garden and I'm going to find Jesus just sitting there on a tree stump saying, hey, nice you could join me. Glad we both followed the same road to get here. That's not the gospel. Like we can't Do that. And and the the pushback I always get when I put when I push back on this is like, well, then are you saying that this isn't true? Like, are you saying that the Bible isn't trustworthy and, and completely true? And I just want to say, no, my problem isn't with scripture. My problem is with us. Like, our problem isn't that we find this trustworthy, our problem is that we find our own minds and hearts trustworthy. That's the problem. So why doesn't it just work? Well, that, that's, the, the problem is our own minds, our own brokenness. Robbie pointed this out. He said, hey, he was reading Institutes by John Calvin, because that's what Robbie does. John Calvin was a reformer nearly 500 years ago. This was written, you think about the Reformation, that's after a thousand years of false teaching. And these reformers were trying to preserve these things, who Jesus was, how we are saved. But their big focus was, how are we saved? That was the big heresy of the day and the big false gospel. And so they're trying to kind of get people to detox from this tangled mess of works righteousness back in that day. And so he's, he's pushing back against that. And one of the ways the reformers did this is they taught They taught and they taught and they taught, like five sermons a week, like just all these different they write and they would write. They because people needed those the only way they could help the people, as the people are coming to them and saying, like, man, I don't even know what to believe, and so they're just teaching and teaching. So John Calvin definitely believed in sound doctrine. He definitely believed in the power of teaching God's word. And this is what he said about people and about the idea that, okay, so now we're gonna pursue truth, right? That's our goal. John Calvin says this, However, our love of the truth, such as it is, falters even before it gets underway, because it yields to vanity. For the human mind, because of its ignorance, cannot follow a sure path in its search for truth, but blunders into various errors. Just as a blind man stumbles about in the darkness until he quite loses his way, so the mind pursuing the truth shows how ill-suited and ill-equipped it is to seek and find it. Failing more often than not to discern what it should strive to know, it is thus plagued by the foolish itch to inquire into useless trivia. As for the really important things, it either despises them or, instead of attending to them, It simply gives them a passing glance. Part of what he's saying here is the reason why the pursuit of truth doesn't work is because our minds are broken and flawed by sin. And so in doing that, because we believe we can do that, we start to kind of pick and choose and form our own version of the truth. And our own version of the truth is not truth. And in the things that push against our understanding and press us and make us uncomfortable, we either despise them and we call them false or we just give them a passing glance. So Jesus says, love your enemies. That feels hard. Don't really understand how I would do that. Don't know what that looks like. I'm just going to say it and then just kind of move on. It is the very definition of being wise in our own eyes. And so that's one of the reasons why that doesn't work. It, it doesn't work because we're also selective then. We, we choose those things. We choose the things that make most, the most sense to us. It's why in, in these laws that we've created, in this thing where we kind of create our own world and why the Pharisees doing that, why they missed some really big important things like mercy, mercy and justice while they were quibbling over little controversies about whether they should tithe, um, whether they should tithe mint. Like you get caught up in that and saying like, okay, but what, what's the truth about this? And you miss this whole bigger thing. That's what happens when we're selective. It's why we are hard on sins that we don't struggle with and easy on ones that we do. So sins like love of money or pride or, or gossip or grumbling or complaining or judging our neighbor, they get all swept under the rug. And we say, well, nobody's perfect. We want to be a place of grace. So we're okay with all that. But homosexuality... Let me ask you this, a lot of grief going on in what's being taught in the public schools. I hear that fear a lot, and I understand it. But when was the last time that you grieved over the idea that high schools all over America are breeding grounds for gossip and slander, for classism and division, for bullying and abuse? Like, look, let me ask you, show of hands, How many of you in middle school and in high school would say that you were grieved or harmed by gossip, slander, bullying, abuse? Okay, the rest of you were the bullies. Got that. All right. That was unfair. I acknowledge. But we are. It's all over the place. And we're constantly teaching that. But to all those things, we say, ah, but those kids, just teenagers, but is it? We do that because it's become so normal that we think it can't possibly be sin. And because we are perpetrators ourselves. And so because it feels very normal and we do it, it makes it into our law. problem, of course, is that we ultimately miss Jesus. We function as though by seeking truth, we can find eternal life. When Jesus says, no, no, it's through me. In John 14, Jesus is telling his disciples about what heaven's going to be like, how he's going to prepare a place for them. And there is... No, there's no way that they could possibly understand what he is talking about. And he says to them in verse 4 of John chapter 14, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas blurts out what I have to believe was on everybody's mind Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is not a throwaway line. They are ingrained in a culture that says to get to God, I have to obey the right thing. So when Jesus is telling us about him going back to the Father and he says, hey, you're going to be there with me. You know the way. Thomas is saying, how do we know that? You haven't told us what we're supposed to do to get there. And Jesus says, another place, he says, you, you've been with me so long and you don't know? He says, I am the way. Follow me. What you've been doing, follow me. And if you're going to pursue Jesus, let me just tell you, that's going to make you far more uncomfortable than your man-made law and search for truth ever will. Because in our pursuit of truth, like Calvin says, we just dismiss the things that make us uncomfortable. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable every day. I'm not sure how much clearer he can get. We talk about reading the Bible then to to know Jesus, that we we aren't just reading it as a a manual um, on how we're supposed to handle different situations. Look, it it should be obvious to us, but when Jesus, when when the Gospels record Jesus interacting with a leper, that was not meant so that you could say, oh, if I ever run into a leper who's outcast on the edge of town, I know what to do. There's something much deeper going on there. And when John says at the end of his gospel that if all the works of Jesus were uh, were written about, then all the books of the world couldn't contain it, he's not saying, hey, you know what? It would have been really awesome. He did a lot more things. It would have been really awesome if we could have gotten to what he said about retirement accounts and about like stances on national debt and foreign aid. Like it's not the point. The point is that all that Jesus is and all who he is it's like meeting somebody that you're just so blown away by you're telling somebody else about this person that you just can't you can't come up with all the things that happened you can't you can't describe everything that that person made you feel or how they made you think or how they challenged you or any of that stuff you you can't you just you try but you just can't get it all out too many stories too many moments too many looks And yet, by the grace of God, it's sufficient. We don't need new accounts of Jesus or new revelations to make up for that. What God has given us in Scripture is is sufficient, not in the topics that it covers, but in the person it points us to. Who is the way and the truth and the life? A while back, I... One of the reasons why this came up, and I just thought, man, we've got to deal with this. We've got to look for a time. You know, God, just please help help us address this well. A while back, I suggested when we were talking about posting on social media, and, and one of the defenses against some of the things that I've read is like, well, but truth. Like, the most important thing when I post on social media is that it's the truth. And I want to say, like, isn't the most important thing that it, it sounds like Jesus? And so, I just made that request. I said, when you're typing up a a response or a post for social media, just imagine, could I imagine Jesus sitting down and typing this out? And it was kind of a throwaway line. I got so many people who came up to me and said, I never thought about that. And that shows how ingrained this is, that we think there's some kind of objective truth that runs parallel to Jesus. And as long as I'm pursuing this thing of truth in my own mind, in my, in my own power, that I'm going to be running parallel with Jesus. I'm going to be like, hey, Jesus, we're doing great, huh? Yep, keep it up. We should think about that. Our first goal, if our desire is to abide in Christ, the very first thing we should ask is, does this sound like Jesus? See, when we're doing that, when we pursue this on this parallel track, we end up missing the much bigger truths. We create these this law, and by giving a glancing pass by, by some of these other bigger issues, we miss the bigger things. So in Luke 11, Jesus addresses this. He's, he's criticized because um, they, he's not obeying the law. He's constantly accused of not obeying the law. And in chapter 11, verse 39 He says to the Pharisees, when they say, hey, aren't you going to wash up? The Lord said to him, now, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? He goes on in verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, I think most of us could read that and say, well, that sounds pretty harsh. I think I might be offended if he was saying that to me. But we don't even know the depths of the offense of this statement. Because don't forget who he's speaking to. These are the most learned people in the scriptures. These would be the most famous preachers, the greatest scholars, and the holiest men, all wrapped into one. And Jesus says, you are unmarked graves. You are dead where you stand. And nobody knows it. Do you see how this is not just a hey you can do better? He's not saying to the Pharisees, "Hey, love your pursuit of the truth. Love your knowledge of the scriptures. Great job in that." Just this minor little quibble. Maybe we could just work on this a little bit. You completely lack the heart of God. So maybe we could do, deal with that just a little bit. Now he says you're dead. And they want to know about hand-washing. Look, we get distracted by a lot of things while the bigger things we are missing because we are abiding in our own view of truth and not in Jesus. Jesus isn't saying that tithing isn't important. He's saying there are greater things. Here's an example where this plays itself out. We have a... If you have a view of, of sexuality and you say, like, th- this is what I believe the Bible teaches about sexuality and our identity and where we get our identity. And so we say things like, well, okay, well, if this, if, if this is what this view of sexuality is, then, th- then that's good and we should, we should be obeying that and we should be living for that, we should be pursuing that. Okay. And then we say, well, you know what? If we want to make sure that we aren't in violation of anything that God says here, then, you know, we should. We should probably take a step back and let's make sure that we're not doing anything that could possibly look like we're supporting any kind of breaking of God's commandment there. And you know what? If, if being here is, is good, if this is safe, then, then just taking a little step further back is safer. And you know what? I just got to make sure that I don't say anything or do anything that would ever make anybody think that I would condone something that condoned something that condoned breaking the law. And so now pretty soon I'm I'm all the way back here and saying, you know what's even safer is to be all the way back here. And what we end up finding ourselves is we back into breaking a much greater law to love our neighbors ourselves. So we say, this is what God commands of us. Therefore, I can't be seen as ever being a party to that. So I can't befriend or sit with or cry with anybody that is struggling to understand that. And if I can't do that, I have to make sure that nobody else around me does that. And so we have to kind of build up this wall. Listen, if your view of sexuality causes you to keep your distance from people who don't share that view... And cannot possibly understand separating their identity. And understand what, what it means that God has given us. This beautiful identity that is far beyond all of that. Then that is not the way of Jesus. You've backed away so much from sexual sin. That you have violated loving your neighbor as yourself. You may be straining the gnat. But you are swallowing the camel. And so... What Jesus is going after them for is you, you quibble about these things. You want to make it about these isolated issues. You want to isolate these things and say like, well, is, are we supposed to tithe or are we not supposed to tithe? Are we supposed to wash our hands or are we not supposed to wash our hands? And Jesus is saying you're missing the bigger point. And not only are you missing that bigger point, you've created your own law and now you are heaping it on others and making them obey it. And you're doing it all in the name of God. But he says, when the lawyers are listening to this and they say, hey, saying these things to these guys, you offend us also. And I just always like to picture Jesus as turning to them and being like, oh, I'm sorry, was I unclear? Woe to you also. Because he says, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one finger. So we hold people to a standard that they cannot possibly come under. And we tell them, well, good luck. Because I can't walk with you because then it would look like I'm condoning this. And I believe that Jesus would say, woe to you. You hold people to a standard of a law that you created and you stand in judgment of those who do not conform to your image. And you do it all in the name of God talk about heinous listen we we do this when we we force god's teachings and god's law and god's commandments we force it on people who don't know god like when we try to force others to live according to the will of christ without the power of christ we are demonstrating that we believe a false gospel You're placing a yoke on people that they cannot possibly bear unless you believe that you are able to bear it in your own strength. And that then reveals how insidious this is. Because it starts to reveal a heart that says, yeah, well, the reason why I obey God is because I'm just smarter. I'm just more logical. Just a better person just makes sense to me. Of course this is the way God has it set up. If you believe that, that is a false gospel. If you believe that it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit That you're able to see the things of God. That you're able to understand what it means for identity to be found in him and him alone. To understand that it's worth selling everything that I have in order to gain Christ. Like, if you believe that you somehow figured that out in your own strength, then that, my friends, is a heresy. But if you believe that it is in the power of the Holy Spirit... And only there that you can defeat and battle against sin and be found as acceptable before God. Why would you insist that your neighbor do it in their own strength? Or do you think that it is more important that they stop sinning than that they know Jesus? Or do you think that by stopping sinning, they will be able to meet Jesus? This is what's happening This is why you can have a famous pastor say, I told that guy that if he wants to be saved by Jesus, he's got to change his clothes. And if there's anything more grieving than that, it was all the comments under it saying, hashtag truth, hashtag truth, hashtag truth. Thanks for being bold. Thanks for being courageous. It is not courageous to boldly proclaim a false gospel. We demonstrate that we believe that glorification is found in the world being formed into our image. But our image is not glorious. We have no ability to transform anybody, there's only Christ. So they create this broken law. They held people to that standard, causing stumbling blocks for people who are trying to come to God. And then they stand and self-righteous judgment of those who do not conform. And that self-righteous judgment is worse than the acts that they're judging. Look at, if you think about the woman caught in adultery, there are two sins that are on display in that narrative. One is adultery, and the other is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, he confronts first and in front of everybody. Adultery, he confronts afterward and privately. He doesn't go up to them. He doesn't come in that situation and say to the crowds, Hey, love that you're against adultery. It's actually one of the commandments. One of my favorites. Kudos to you. But a little slightly better way. Let's not murder her. He doesn't say that. He comes into the situation and knows that the more grievous, the more heinous sin is on display in the self-righteous judgment of the crowd. And he confronts that. And when he does, they all leave in shame, which is ironic because if they would receive the righteousness of Christ, they would have repented and asked for forgiveness and stayed and would have gotten to see a beautiful restoration. The reason he chases away her accusers first is because that was the bigger deal. The self-righteousness was worse than the adultery. If you don't believe me, you can also look to parables like in Luke 18. when there's a tax collector and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee goes up and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like sinners like this dude over here. I do all these things for you. Thank you that you made me this way. Doesn't that feel like grimy to even say? But do we ever do that? full confession man there are times where I I hear something so heinous and I just think oh God thank you that I'm not like that it's horrifying God thank you that I'm not not a drunk like that guy or I didn't do what that person did or I don't spend my money in that way thank you that I have, have figured this out so that I don't do that And meanwhile, you have the tax collector who can't even lift his eyes up to heaven. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now listen, when Jesus is telling that story, there is no question who was obeying more of God's laws. None. You had a Pharisee who would have been the holiest of holies, and you have a tax collector, a thief. And then Jesus says, he doesn't just stop there. He says, he doesn't just say like, hey, the tax collector is redeemed and justified too. He doesn't say that. He says that the tax collector went down the hill justified rather than the Pharisee. And in that, he's declaring self-righteousness is worse than stealing. Because that's what tax collectors did. it is important that we understand that God does not look upon. When that comes up in my heart, like, I want to kill it. I don't want that to have any place in my heart. When that starts to come up at all, just kill it. Be ruthless with it. Because God does not, God looks on all kinds of things with patience and kindness. And like, my maturity as a dad, as I'm being sanctified in his ways, like, he is compassionate. And Jesus, um, he, he is He is with us in the midst of our sin. But God doesn't look upon our self-righteous judgment and say, well, at least you're standing for the truth. You points for that. But if we could just be a little nicer about it, that would be great. Instead, he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. And so, yes, sin is a big deal. Yes, we see it being destructive, but we are to pursue Jesus in the midst of it. And so sometimes people will say like, well, then do we never confront sin? Like, do we just say like, hey, we're all, we're all good? And I would say, no, but we follow Jesus and how we do that. He explicitly tells us how to do this. Multiple times, by the way, but one in particular is Matthew 7. And he says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is, a lo- th- when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, I don't know about you, but I used to take this as, okay, got it. Yes, we're supposed to confront sin, but only when I defeat that sin. So I picked on Joe in the first service, and he has the misfortune of sitting close to me again. So know, a lot of us know Joe. He led worship here today. He is, Joe, just for the record, is one of the most humble guys that I know, and a gracious, gracious man. So imagine, though, that I look at Joe, and I'm like, you know what? I want to confront him about his gossip. That dude's always, bah, 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 about everybody. Did you see Robbie's haircut? Ah! See what, Jay wore that same shirt again? Ah. And if I want to confront him in that, I used to interpret this passage as being saying, okay, first I have to make sure that I don't gossip. And then when I stop gossiping and I'm clean of that, then I can go and I can see clearly to help Joe figure out how to stop gossiping. It sounds kind of right, right? Except it's not. I think it's much more likely that the plank that is being referred to is that of self-righteousness, judgmental self-righteousness. That's what he's talking about in the passage. It's about judgment. And so the issue isn't like, I mean, just imagine that scenario. If I can't confront Joe until I have cleansed myself of all gossip, then what am I doing other than becoming self-righteous in my cleansing of my own gossip so that I can go and be like, hey, I conquered this, so can you. How much more sense does it make? That when I hear him gossiping and I'm like, oh, that makes me cringe. Like someone needs to say something to him. Someone needs to confront that. And the Lord says, first, humble yourself. Take out the plank of self-righteousness and judgment from your own eye." First, receive the mercy that has been given to you and be mindful and considering of how Christ has forgiven you and loved you and known you while you were an enemy of Him. And then, as you are filled with love and joy and thanksgiving and humility of being shown all of that, now you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. As you approach Him, not in judgment, but as one blind beggar telling another blind beggar where to find food. And that's where the power comes from the church. Our power is not in condemning people and telling everybody in the world to live like Jesus without Jesus. Power comes in us being transformed from the inside out and becoming a city on a hill as we pursue lives of holiness together and pursue Jesus together people look at that and they say what is what is different about you how does your church family function like this and we get to say grace by jesus And we get to point people to him. It's not a small thing. Otherwise, what we are communicating to the world is that God stands in judgment of you and the way for you to escape that is to stop doing bad things. To conform to what we tell you you should do. That is what the Pharisees did and that is a false gospel. It is heinous, it is evil, it is destructive. The real gospel is we point them to Jesus. Jesus. Who transforms all of us, who brought dead hearts alive and opened eyes. And look, I understand that it's tempting, and, and, and I, am, I am drawing to a close. I just decided I was just gonna embrace the length because it's so critical. But it's so tempting because people who preach this false gospel sound so sure and seem so biblical. And they push and push on the issue of truth. And be like, well, doesn't truth matter to you? Don't you care about truth? And you're like, yeah, I I do. And then we find ourselves drawn to people who act like the Pharisees. And people who act like Jesus are seen as weak. And people who act like the Pharisees are seen as bold. That's how blind it makes us. And it's also tempting because it just does feel safer. Like it just it it just seems logical. Like if I'm not supposed to cross this line, isn't it safer to stay all the way over here? That's kind of what the Pharisees were doing. Except Jesus didn't think it was safer. Jesus constantly was putting himself into positions that led him open to criticism of people saying, like, don't you, don't, don't you approve of the law of God? Like, don't you think this is a big deal? Don't you, are you condoning their sin? And Jesus never was concerned with that. He was actually showing them something better. So you tell me, if we're going to err, would we rather err by living too much like Jesus or too much like the people who hated him? That was an unfair phrasing of that question, I acknowledge. I try it again. If we're going to err, would you rather err on the side of living too much like Jesus or too much like the ones who sought to murder him? But that was worse. Okay. The reason I can't come up with a better way to say it is because that is actually the choice. That when we buy into the idea that people will be saved by conforming to the image and the law that we have created, then our number one pursuit is making sure that we never give any appearance of condoning anything that is against that. But if our view is that people need Jesus, then we will follow him into all kinds of uncomfortable places and situations. And we will plead with him and we will hang on to him as he takes us on this way. A false gospel is never safer. There is one gospel is the gospel that Paul preached to us, which we received, in which we stand, and by which we are being saved. He says, If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came, to call, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is this glorious message that we have. Christ came for sinners and we're the worst. And we're being transformed moment by moment, day by day, and we get to point others to that. This is why when Paul's preaching this, he's so confused. Why would you want to go anywhere else? He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He so why? Why would you do that? This gospel is amazing. He says, not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ But even if we or an angel from heaven or a discerning website should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So church, if we really care about truth, we'll follow Jesus. So we need to ask the question, what does that look like? And so let's just do that abide in jesus together let's ask questions of each other what does it look like for jesus to be in the midst of that not like well is this right or wrong should i do this or that like what is jesus doing and actively doing through the holy spirit what is going on in that moment how do we listen for his voice how do we find all the treasures of wisdom in him how do we abide in him day by day I encourage us to do that and to embrace the messiness of transformation that goes along with that. We're going to disagree with each other. We're going to rub each other the wrong way. We're going we're to bring up things to each other and we're going we're gonna to not be so sure about it, but, but we're going to be transformed together from one degree of glory to another. And that feels really slow, especially when people annoy you. Like, I want God to move fast with me, but I really want him to move faster with you. Is that too honest? We're saved by Jesus. So draw near to the brokenhearted. Have compassion. Seek understanding. Don't be afraid of that. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And with one another, hang out with people that make you uncomfortable. That's one big tip I would give. I don't know about you, but when I read the words of Jesus, sometimes they freak me out. But all of us have our own personalities and we start to interpret things through our own lenses and that's why we need one another we are the body of christ together one of the questions that got brought up to me after the first service i said that's a great question i think they were i think they were expecting that i had a much more formed answer for that i was like that's a good question i don't know maybe we're doing that wrong Like we have to be able to push on one another like that because you're sensitive to things that I'm not and and vice versa and we have to be okay with that. If we just separate, then we buy into that idea that unity means uniformity and we buy into the idea that like my understanding is perfect. But what if it's actually the way it's designed that we're supposed to rub against each other? The people that make us uncomfortable might be there by design because Jesus makes us uncomfortable and they may be representing a side of Jesus that doesn't come naturally to me why it's so important. So, if I've done nothing other than take extra time on your Sunday, then I'm sorry. But if all I've I've accomplished is to just make us think, does, does this false gospel really exist in my heart and here? And if so, how ruthlessly do I need to Weed that out and pray that God would do that first in my own heart, and then in those that are really close with me that I'm walking with, that we would do that together, and then it just keeps expanding out from there. This is a long journey. It's going to take a lot more conversations, many more sermons and applications, but we're here. We are God's holy people set aside not because of our wisdom or our goodness but because of his good grace. And he has formed us. He has redeemed us. He has adopted us. And we get to go be his ambassadors. A city on a hill that every time someone asks us we get to just say Jesus for his glory, for the hope of the world. Let's pray. Father I'm in such desperate need, God, for you to take all of that make it make sense in our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring conviction but also encouragement and equipping that we would, with one voice, that we would be unified, of one accord, having the same mind that is given to us. It's ours in Christ Jesus. Not the same mind in our own strength, but in, our, in the same mind of being conformed not to our understanding of the truth, but to you, Jesus. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. Forgive us for when we are straying or when we are trusting in our own minds and our own hearts. Forgive us, God, Especially for our judgment of brothers and sisters and for our judgment of those who are outside of the church. God, just change us here so that others could see you, that they might find life. Amen.